and uh, being encouraged again um, with a life of prayer and and the way of uh, intimacy and the abiding life causes you to hunger for relationships and uh, perhaps an opportunity where God's people could get together for some serious praying. It's been a long time since I have been aware of a strong, serious prayer fellowship. Prayer has pretty much faded out of our churches other than the 30, maybe 40 minute uh, prayer sessions. Usually when we meet together in regard to prayer, it's to teach on prayer, preach on prayer, uh, share about prayer, but we've not been very good at praying. I'm talking as a whole, I'm sure there are exceptions, but I'll have to admit in my own life it's been a, lo- it's been a long time since I have been a part of a, a really strong prayer fellowship. And the encouragement of uh, Reese Howell and uh, Dan- Daniel Nash, this other little book, I had several extra copies I brought by this evening for someone who might not have gotten copies of it. It isn't going to happen uh, in the church, in our communities, unless it first happens before the altar of prayer. If it does not happen there, it's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because the Father has tied himself to his creation man. And when he gave man the rule and man abdicated it by giving it to he who's known as the God of this world, until, until the second man came along, Jesus Christ, uh, there were only a few men throughout history. They were always there, but in whom God could entrust his reign by way of prayer. He has limited himself to our praying, and we are very much in the dilemma we're in right now because there is little praying. And I confess I'm no different. My prayer life has been a struggle from the beginning. It isn't a matter of praying words. It's a matter of coming to a place where you know you have made the connection. It's it's getting to the place where your heart is quiet and the issues are his issues. They're no longer your issues. And to where you can hear him by your spirit and him then take charge of leading you in prayer, leading you to ask those things that he's wanting to do. It's like the text in Isaiah where he says, if you will ask me in regard to the sons of Israel, I will do it. Why didn't he just do it? Because he has tied himself to his man, his woman, his child in the earth, the one who will find his presence. Tom Brown and I rode together here tonight, and Tom was sharing about how the Lord had put a word in his heart about the the vine and the branch again. Uh, We'll never, ever be any more than a branch. We'll never be a vine. And yet we've lived all of our life as if we are root, vine, branch, flower, fruit, and all. The truth is, we'll never ever be any more than a branch. And if we are a branch on the vine of God himself, what more would you want? Well, we've wanted more. We've wanted to be our own vine branch, produce the fruit of our own life. We were made to be branches. We were made for the abiding life. We were made for God. We were made to be with God. And all of our efforts, all of our programs, all of our plans for the sake of God and the kingdom are not or 
not uh, unless it comes out of the vine, unless it has its beginning, its source in Him. And I know I'm not saying anything new right now, but I'm just reminding us. Because we're, we're talking about living this other life, living the supernatural life, living out of the divine nature, living by the life force for which we were created. I know that sounds kind of spacey, science fiction-y, but that's reality. The reality is... We were made for the life of God. We were made for His divine nature, ruling and reigning, abiding, living out of us. We are the habitation that God is preparing for Himself. All of creation was not created for us. It had its finish as creation with us, but all of it was to bring into creation a tabernacle in which God himself could dwell. And that's us. We were made for that. And until that sinks home, until you get a hold of the reality that your life does not begin until it begins in him, when that finally sinks in, then we will give all that we are and all that we've been entrusted with to the king and his kingdom and the flow of his life in, through, and out of us. That's what it's all about. And so we've been focusing this last segment on living this divine life. We spent a segment on the rain. It it takes the rain of God in the heart of man for man just to be man. There is no living this life, this out of his life, until it's been settled about who reigns. And so... We have to begin there, and unless that foundation has been laid, and I I hear a lot of preaching, and uh, uh, there's a lot of writing about living the supernatural life, about the power of this other life, but there, there is no power given to those who are seeking power. The authority and the power are always vested in Him by the Father, and it is his power and authority working out of us if there is ever to be power and authority. His intent is to have that liberty. He's looking for vessels in whom he can have free reign and his life, authority, and power can flow. But he is not a rewarder of those who are seeking the reward of power and authority. He is a rewarder of those who are seeking him. And with it comes the other. And if that is so then there's, there's really no value in seeking power and authority. It's all wrapped up in him. Am I coming through here? It's not apart from him. If you've got him, you've got everything. What else is there to get if you've got him? And he does not give of himself in portions. When he gave himself to you, he gave all of himself to you. The work of our Father in us after he has given his son to us, is not one of increase, but decrease. From the fullness of Christ given to us, everything from that point on is a decrease of us, that he might become all in all, that he might be everything. And we keep looking for a life of increase, but uh, it only appears that he increases as we decrease. Uh, but he's already full of himself. He's, he's not come in part. 
Now there is the fullness of God dwelling in us, that is when he has full reign in us, uh, but he, he is there with all of his reign. He's just waiting for us to choose to lay down more and more of ourself. And uh, it begins with a, a, a complete commitment, dedication at some point. But we learn that that has to be walked out. What we, I've, I've learned, if you've not learned, I'm sure most of you have learned this, that I'll make some commitment to the Lord and I really am ignorant of what I'm saying. I have no idea what it's going to cost and what it's going to look like. You know, we see all of the benefits and the blessings, the authority, the power, the joy, the health, all of those things. But we forget that in order for that to come forth in fullness, there has to be a decrease of the old man. There has to be the walking out of uh, putting to death the deeds of the flesh and bringing uh, fully under uh, the, the soul, the mind, will, and emotions of the old man. And that's death. It feels like death. It smells like death. It acts like death. It's as depressing as death. I'd like to say it's not. But it can only be borne out by those who see by faith his life coming forth. And the truth is, in death, if our eyes are always on him and not on the death, most have a very miserable death. Most of my death has been miserable. I mean, I get all into myself when I'm hurting and suffering. I mean, I can, I'm pitiful. I'd like to say that I'm not, but I am. I'm pitiful. Hopefully Patty will not hear this and you hear her amen. But, <laughs> but uh, I, find, I have found that when I get off of myself in the dying and look to the life, it's not so hard. You know, when we look beyond, and some of you are going through some of that dying now. And, uh, and it's been hard, but I've heard your testimony from some of you. The joy set before you somehow has brought you peace in the midst of what you know is death. That's what I'm trying to say here. When our eyes are on him, when we can see what he's doing, when faith comes out of his presence, then it's, it's not only bearable, but it's the joy set before us supersedes the experience of dying. I hope that wasn't too morbid, my saying that, but the truth is every one of you have experienced some of it. And you would not have stayed with me so long if you hadn't already recognized that that's true in your own life. But it's this other life coming forth that is our focus. It is the abiding life. I've shared this, uh, the practice of the presence. If you've not read that yet, you're going to be blessed. It is living out of the vine. It is, you know, the branch is never... Uh, that is a living branch is never separated from the vine. And we've had, we've not had many practical, we've not had much practical teaching, nor have we had many mentors who've learned the way of, of living out our lives abiding, practicing moment by moment the experience of living out of Christ. And this book is practical in that sense. It's, it's really, uh, I think you'll find it very encouraging. And so I again want to encourage that. The books on the table are to our, our guests. There's no charge for those. Saints have made provision to bless you with it. 
So you feel free to, to help yourself with those materials. Last week we uh, continued with the concept of being sons of light. In him was the life and the life was the light. And his glory is often spoken of in the scriptures as, as brilliant radiance or the radiance of his glory actually shines uh, when it is completely free. It's, it's like a blinding light who can, who can see God because of the exceeding great light of his glory, the scriptures speak. But we're called sons and daughters of light. And I like that. I've been using that for the last several weeks. And on occasion, I've, I've used it with those who've not heard recently or have never heard teaching on our being sons and daughters of light. And I would greet a pastor, for example, someone I'm working with as a, as a son of light. And it always draws, you know, some expression of, uh, what? And, uh, or sons and daughters of the kingdom. That's who you are, sons and daughters of the reign. That's who we are in Christ. And I, I'm, I'm enjoying doing that on occasion, just expressing that with uh, some of my friends. Because it, it communicates, I believe, a truth that we need to, we need to encourage each other in. We're, we're sons of light and daughters of light. We are light bearers. In him was the life and the life was the light. In us is the life and the life is the light. And in this darkness, and, dar and this darkness is becoming more dark still. It's becoming darker still, I guess I should say. And the evil's becoming more evil still. But the light is becoming brighter still. And uh, it is not going to be swallowed up in the darkness. It doesn't work that way. So we just need to be faithful at being sons and daughters of light. And I spent last week on the law of light. The law of light is the law of openness and focus. That uh, we have as much light in us as we are open to him. And as much as we are focused on him. And if our focus is divided, and if he is the light and our focus is elsewhere, and many, many have come into Christ under teaching that has caused, that has caused them to focus on something other than Christ, a doctrine, a teaching that is short of Christ. Am I communicating here? We have a lot of doctrines and teaching that are true, but they're not the truth. He's the truth. And you, you can have a religious experience around a teaching, a doctrine, and miss him. And that's why we're in so much trouble in so many areas. We have a lot of teaching and doctrine that is true, but it is short of him. It is short of the the fullness of the truth of him. And what happens is, is we, we end up focusing on that which is short of him. And if, and if the light in you is darkness, you know, how great is that darkness? And a lot who are calling on the name of Jesus, that is, who are calling themselves by the name of Jesus, are really full of darkness and they know it. They know there's something wrong. There's no life in this. I know a lot of miserable Christians and it has to do with the law of light. It has to do with abiding. It has to do with beholding him. It has to do with uh, finding him and being open to him only, exclusively unto him. And our um, the amount of light, which is like saying the amount of life, for in him was the life and the life was the light, the amount of light in us has everything to do with our openness 
and our focus. I hope you're realizing that I'm saying this in every way I can think possible. I've been saying it for 23 weeks now, 22 weeks now. He's the answer. Get with Him. He is our life. And uh, we need Him. We need to just lay down a whole lot of stuff and lay aside a lot of good teaching until we've settled this issue of being fully uh, entwined with Him, fully abiding in Him. I don't know how else to say it, but hear that, receive that in your spirit, know that in your spirit. There's no, there's no future for Carl here in electronics or computers, which he has gifts in, and technology. There's no future in that unless it is out of Christ. Carl's only value, only value is in Christ. Only as much as Christ is formed in him does he have any value. Thanks for letting me use your Carl, but it's true of all of us. We have no value, no, no purpose outside of him. All of the rest is just whited sepulchers, dead men's bones, death in the end. Ministering to a sister here recently, a sister whom Patty and I have been close to, her and her husband, been involved in ministry, been involved in missions for 25 years in the middle of a divorce. And she's been convinced that she, that God made her gay and has taken up another Christian woman lover and is convinced by teaching by preachers and godly men and women that it is all right in Christ. I'm not talking about a brand new Christian. I'm not talking about someone who has just come into this out of that. How can that happen? Living out of teaching and ministry that is short of its life being found in him only, exclusively. You know, I've been raised in a particular stream with a particular name, but that denomination will not be heard in heaven. God has used all of our uniquenesses and differences. I believe God is in the midst of. But those things that we have attached to his life that have separated us, it's going to pass. It's not the life. It's just not the life. He's the life. Well, I've taken a lot of time to make a point I've been making every week. Thank you for your patience with me. This week we're going to focus and we're going to conclude with how to live the impossible life. How to do the impossible. I'm talking about walking on water. Changing a few loaves and fishes into great baskets full of loaves and fishes. Out of nothing. I'm talking about limbs being restored. How to do the impossible. There's a text in John 6 where he's talking about I am the bread 
And uh, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, we're not going to turn to it unless you just want to turn to it. But he makes a little statement down around verse 57, I believe it is. As the Father sent me, excuse me, as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father. But that little phrase, as the Father sent me. And the thought here is, as I have life because of the Father and His sending me, you have life because of me and I send you. And if you were to look at the Luke chapter 9 verse 2, after in verse 1 He called the, the twelve together and gave them power and authority, He sent them out. He sent them out. Then we of course have the sending out in Matthew 28, Mark 16, the Great Commission. But before the sending out, there is the making. But Jesus is making the point, as I have been sent, I send you, as the Father did it with me, as he did it with me, I do it with you. How did the Father do it with the Son? How did Jesus do the impossible? And that's where we're beginning. How did Jesus do it? And we're laying a foundation here. And it's important that you get this foundation. We've touched on it many times, but I want you to get it from the Scriptures. I want you to have a strong scriptural foundation for this reality. And this reality is that uh, as Jesus did the impossible, in the very same way Jesus did the impossible, we will do the impossible. So let's look at it beginning in John chapter 14. How Jesus did the impossible. Verse 8, John 14. Reading from verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. The Father, that is. Philip said to the Lord, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me, he does the work or the works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. We spent the opening weeks of this last Third, sharing along this very line. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We've been sharing along the line that it is Christ in us. That the abode of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not just the Holy Spirit. This very chapter, not only does he say, well, I, I must go, that I will send you the Comforter, the, para, the great Paraclete, who is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. I will send him, but he says, and then I will come unto you. And then he says, and I and my Father, we will come to you and we will make our abode in you. So it isn't just the Holy Spirit in us. No, they've come to dwell together in us. And as the Father is in me, Jesus is saying here in uh, verse 11, as the Father is in me, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. You can believe that the Father is in me because of the works that are coming by my hands. And then back in verse 10, he makes it very clear. How did Jesus do the impossible? He didn't. In the same way that Jesus did the impossible, will you and I do the impossible? He didn't do it. 
But my Father who is in me, He did the works. Are you hearing that? As the Father sent me, as He did it with me, I'll do it with you. And how did He do it with me? I didn't do it. He did it because He abides in me. And the proof of His abiding in me, the proof that He's abiding in me and is doing the work, is the work that's coming from my hands because these are Son of Man's hands. We'll, we'll carry that on a little further. These are not son of God's hand, although he was never less than son of God, but these were son of man's hands. He could do nothing on his own initiative. And that's the point he is making here. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me, he does the works. Everything that Jesus did, he did not do. But his Father who is in me. How did Jesus do the impossible? He didn't. The Father did. And as the Father did it in him, and I send you, as the Father, the living Father, is living in me, I'm living in you, so how are we going to do the impossible? We're not. But he who is living in us, and the proof of this, now hear this, the proof of his living in us is the life and works that's coming from our hands. Believe then because of the works. If you want to know why the world is not believing, it's because we're not believing. We're wanting God up there to do something over there or in there when He is wanting to do it out of here. Because He's wanting to, to express Himself. He's wanting to reveal Himself. Jesus said, I come to you that I might disclose Myself. He's wanting to disclose Himself not only to us, but out of us. That's why we were created. But it will only be so when we conclude that we can't. We weren't created to do it. We were created to be the vessel in which He would indwell. And the proof of His indwelling is that He would live out of us and do those things that by nature He would do. Then the proof of it is that which takes place in our life, the impossible. But we did not do it. Go with me to John chapter 5. In verse 30, this is saying much the same, making a little different emphasis here, but it's the same truth. Verse 30 of John 5, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Now, this phrase, I can do nothing. You know, he, Jesus said that concerning Nazareth. I could not do many mighty miracles or many miracles in Nazareth. Now, that could have one of two meanings. If you tell a paraplegic or a quadriplegic to climb that ladder and his response were, were to be, I cannot climb that ladder. The reason he cannot climb that ladder is because of limitations that he has in his very nature. He is limited from doing it. He cannot possibly do it. However, when my father said to me, you cannot go over to Fred's house, it did not mean that I couldn't have. It meant that I'd better not. I might have the ability, the capability, and even the bent or the desire to, 
But what it is saying, when my father said, you cannot go over to Fred's house, what he is saying is that you're under authority and the one who is over you is saying that if you are under authority, you're not to go there. And when you understand that and recognize that, you'll understand a little bit better of why Jesus could not do many miracles in Nazareth. It wasn't because he was limited, that is, the Father in him was limited in any way by their lack of faith. Although it was because of a lack of faith. But it isn't that the faith bound them. It was that the authority said it was not to take place there. And so when Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative, it does not mean that he was not Son of God. It does not mean that were he to choose so, he could call down ten legions of angels to rescue him. He could have. But being under authority and having laid down the prerogatives and the uh, characteristics of his divinity, it isn't that he was ever less than God. It's that he chose to humble himself. He chose to bring himself under in a way that he had never experienced before. As we'll see in scriptures here a little later, he chose to put himself in that place where he could do nothing on his own initiative. And it had more to do with his being in submission than his being incapable as the Son of God. Am I communicating here? But he chose it. Now the truth is, there are many things you and I can do that we should not be doing. There are many things that we should not be doing by our own initiative. The truth is, there are very few things that we should be doing under our own initiative. And it would be those things that we would be doing by nature. Being in this vessel. But Jesus said, I can do nothing. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I can do nothing on my own initiative. What we're doing on our own initiative has everything to do with our will. Now, how many things in your life, if you were to uh, segment your life up into segments... How many of those segments, those significant segments in your life, family, vocation, work, homes, where you live, where you're going, how many of those things would fall under on our own initiative or have to do with our will? Those are the things that must die. We've not been called to be our own. We've been bought and paid for with a price. We're not our own. If we are our own, we're not his own. He is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. That does not mean we're walking in it perfectly, but it does indicate the direction of our heart and the intent of our heart. And the Lord judges us on the basis of the intent of our heart, not our actions, but the motives of our heart. That's why Jesus could say, you have heard that it is said that a man who commits adultery but I say unto you, the Father sees you no differently than if he sees the same thing in your heart. Many men are constrained and women are constrained from adultery by circumstances. You remove all of the circumstances and you remove all restraints 
and give opportunity and many more would be there. Am I coming through? Well, that's exactly what has happened in my lifetime. The constraints of social order and culture have been removed. They've been almost totally removed. And now the only thing that keeps a man or a woman faithful is his commitment to his Lord. It isn't, certainly isn't culture. It almost looks down on fidelity and faithfulness. You can't, you can hardly watch a commercial, much less a, a movie, without recognizing that all of it is a put down on that which our Father esteems. But you remove the restraints, and if we're living, and if there are no restraints on actions in regard to what's in our heart, and that's what's happening. That's why evil is becoming more evil still. That's why the darkness is becoming more dark or becoming darker still. That's, the pro that's a prophecy of the end of the age. The restraints are removed. And the world is looking for a people who are governed by something other than will and self. But who are constrained by another life. I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will. This issue of will keeps us from hearing, by the way. We don't realize how much our will, our ambitions, our desires limit God. I've used this illustration before, but I cannot hear God speak to me about the purchase of a car a new Mercedes or a used Volkswagen. I cannot hear him tell me that if I cannot hear him say neither, sell the old Chevy you have and trust me. It is coming to this place where it is no longer our will that is reigning. It is no longer our desires that are reigning. How did Jesus do it? He laid down his will. He did not seek his own. He left the initiative to the Father. It had to have its beginning place in his Father. I've spent most of the ministry part of my life trying to get God to bless what I wanted to do for him, that I, I was moved that he would like to see done. Ministry out of need or out of what I perceived his will was in the earth rather than out of what his will was for me. And it all sounded right. It all had, you know, the correct statements, but still trying to get him to bless my will for his work. And, you know, he, he was faithful in it. He was there with me in it. But it always was work. It always was exhausting. It always was a burden. Any of you know what I'm talking about? With him, when there's no will of our own and when we're waiting for his initiative, when we're waiting for him to, to give us direction, with it comes his life and provision. And it's, the effort may, be, uh, may appear to be far greater, may be far more activity going on, but it's in rest. It's, it's absolutely in rest. And it is this life that Jesus was living. He, he did nothing on his own initiative. As I hear, I judge. John chapter 12. 
How did Jesus do it? He did not do it. But His Father who was in Him, He did the works. As the Father sent me, so send I you. As I did it by the Father, and I am now in you, I send you to do it as I have done it. We've had some Rob who is my faithful challenger. He's gifted really in, in seeing beyond to see both sides. And he, he raised the question about imitations. You know, I've, I've said we've not been called to be imitators. And yet God says be imitators of Christ. How did Christ do it? He didn't. Be imitators of Christ. Christ did not seek to create an imitation of godliness, righteousness, sanctification. He allowed him, his Father in him to be, who is righteousness, sanctification, godliness. And we'll look at that next week, the, the, the mysteries of godliness and iniquity and Christ in us. John chapter 12, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me but in him who sent me. That's sort of a play on words, isn't it? It's rather neat that the Holy Spirit has retained the mystery of that thought. Everything that I've done, I did not do. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. And that's the thought behind our sharing God is wanting us to come to a place where others look at us can, and can say, isn't he wonderful? As Christ did it by the Father, we're to do it by him. Verse 50. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. It's waiting for the Father. It's, it's coming to the place where the, it is the Father who is speaking to him and through him. I remember my classes in Bible college and uh, the teaching on how to preach and how to teach. And it was all useful and I believe would be very beneficial had it have had a correct foundation. But you know, we learn a sort of a systematic theology and we learn how to build. You've had a hard time finding a three-point outline with me, haven't you? Huh? It's been almost impossible, hasn't it? I've got some in my files somewhere. I know I do. An introduction, three points, conclusion, illustrations here and there. And... uh and God used that. He really he used that. And I certainly am not uh, known as a speaker. But I'm looking for the life. And I believe those, perhaps all of you, are can sense when I am moving out of this other life as opposed to when I'm moving out of myself. And I'm not in any way... The only way you can brag about that is to brag about Him. Because it's it's waiting on that other life. And, and he takes foolish things. Look, he takes foolish things. He does. He takes foolish things. 
to confound the wise. He delights in taking nothing and doing everything. Because then he gets all of the glory. He gets all of the credit. And when you're finally able to accept that, and, and it, I would never have admitted that, and I don't know that I ever consciously thought that, but the truth is, I would work real hard on a, on a message or on a teaching because I wanted some of the credit. I wanted it to be good because John Brown was doing it. There's death in that. And I've experienced that death. There's death in that. And as Uncle Arthur, an older brother, you know, he it, he's the one that finally enabled me to see. He says he spends almost all of his time not finding a word, but finding him. And when he's assured that he has him, that's, he goes on that. And if you've ever heard Uncle Arthur, you, you know what I'm talking about. He finds that way of the Spirit. I'm not saying it's the only way that the Spirit leads. I believe the Lord, by His Spirit, leads many to write very fine outlines and easy-to-remember messages and sermons. I believe that. I do. I believe that. I lack many of those gifts. I've said too much here, perhaps. Let's go to 1 Timothy. We've made the point, Jesus did not do it. But his Father who was in him did it. I'm wanting to put a nail in this coffin that is burying self-effort. I've got to go back to John 14. Oh, my apologies. Let's go back to John 14. I missed something. There is a discussion from almost the beginning in the church, really a, a division over this reality that I'm going to touch on. It may not mean what I am going to suggest it means, but it means something. And you've got to deal with it meaning something. But in John chapter 14, down around verse 28, there's a statement that's made that you probably, many of you have never ever heard a sermon on. Because it, it almost goes against our believing in the deity of Jesus Christ, His being one with the Father, His being of God, the Godhead of His being with God from the beginning. But it is only because we've not understood Verse 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. For the Father is greater than I. For the Father is greater than I. We have a theology, and it's not an incorrect theology. We don't have time to really pursue much in this area. But it, it says it, it means it, it means, and what it means will leave to the Holy Spirit. He, he wrote it. He's the one that must interpret it to each of our own hearts. It is not in contradiction to say that Jesus is one with the Father, or as the Spirit said in Philippians 2, that he did not think it a thing to be grasped, to be equal with, because he was. He did not have to grasp, but he had it. It is not in contradiction to say that Jesus was equal with the Father as being God. And to also say that the Father was greater than Jesus. And here's the difference. Now listen to this. It's significant. 
because it's what gives you and I hope of entering into the fullness of the life for which we were created. Though he was never ever less than God, he chose to humble himself to live as never ever more than man. And Jesus never ever lived on this earth after coming by Mary as more than the Son of Man. And it is because he chose in humbling himself to be ever more as never more than the Son of Man that the Father highly exalted him in the end. But he could say, and it was him speaking by the Holy Spirit, and it was recorded by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus said, the Father is greater than I. Here is the reason why he had to choose that. And we're going to look at four reasons from the scriptures that that I believe settle this issue. Though never ever less than God, he chose to live as never ever more than man. Because had he have both been God and lived as God, he could not have done what he did for us. And I'll explain that as we continue. But being never less than God, he chose to live as never more than man. Had he have both been God and lived as God, we could not have seen him. And he could not have been tempted. And he could not have learned. And he could not have died. First Timothy chapter 1. And had he not have been able to be seen and to be tempted and to learn and to die, there'd be no hope for you and I. It is because he took on himself the place, the reality of being seen and tempted and to learn and to die that you and I have hope of also. As he did it by the Father, we can do it by him. In this lies our hope. Beyond, of course, our forgiveness. But we weren't created just to sin so he could forgive us. Forgiving us just brings us to the place where he can give us a restored spirit that died in Adam in which he could come and dwell and do what we were created to both be and do. First Timothy chapter 1. In First Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Jesus is an example as the Father sent me and I did it by the Father so you by me can do it. But now notice verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is invisible. See that there. God is invisible. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. In chapter 6 of verse Timothy, we come to verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Whoops. This is written 45, 50, 55 years after the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, through, through Paul to Timothy, is making the point that God cannot be seen by man, has never been seen by man, because he cannot be seen by man. God is invisible. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, some of your translations will have the only begotten Son, but that is the God, or that is God the begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him or revealed Him. God cannot be seen, but He has been revealed by the Son. Colossians chapter 1.15 God who is invisible cannot be seen, but you see Jesus can be seen. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God who cannot be seen, Jesus can be seen. But because Jesus can be seen, the Father is now revealed. It is that mystery, if you would, the hope of glory. It is that mystery that makes possible the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. The outraying, the manifestation, the seeing of the very nature of God. Because God has created now a tabernacle by which He can both dwell and be revealed from. God who is invisible cannot be seen has created a visible creation and has by his creation of a new living tabernacle, a spirit that is in his image and likeness, he is now to in, is able to indwell that image and likeness by way of his Son, and he can now reveal himself, the God who cannot be seen. And that's why Jesus could say, the Father is greater than I. Because he has humbled himself and taken on the form of man to live as never more than man, but in being never less than God. But in that place, it's a reality. It isn't, he's not imitating, he's not play-acting. He has humbled himself. And in that place, it's very real that he is not living by his own initiative, by his own desires. And by the way, he had desires that differed from his father but they were always submitted to the Father's will. You know the, the condition in the garden. Not my will, but thy will. Not the Son of Man's will. Not what man in this situation can't keep from desiring. But nevertheless, not mine, but thine. And in that, God is revealed. James chapter 1. Jesus is seen. Verse 13. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted. In this, the Father is greater than the Son. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's go back just several pages in Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 15 of Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The Father cannot be tempted. Jesus was tempted in all things as we are. Never less than God, but living as never more than man. Can you see this? It's important. There's hope in this for us. There's hope in this. Because as Jesus did it by his Father, we can do it by him. Hebrews chapter 5. Same page or next page. Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Point number 3. Job says, or God speaking to Job, who can teach me? Who has something to give me? Who can give God wisdom? Who can reveal something he does not know? And yet, a God who cannot be taught because he has all wisdom and all knowledge including foreknowledge. We now have a son who has limited himself to where he needs to learn. And he learned by suffering. He learned obedience. God who cannot be seen is seen. And we have Jesus who can be seen. A God who cannot be tempted, Jesus is tempted. A God who cannot be taught, Jesus learns. And finally, Quoting again from 1 Timothy 1, not only was he invisible, but he was immortal. And in uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, the same truth is given. Not only is he invisible, but he's immortal. A God who cannot die. And then we would compare it with the many, many texts to coming to mind. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. For we, those sinners, have one Christ who died for us. God who cannot die, Jesus died. Jesus can be seen. Jesus was tempted. Jesus learned. Jesus died. And therefore Jesus could say, The Father is greater than I. Because he humbled himself to show us how. It's become important to me, at least it's the thing the Lord has put on my heart. Almost our entire gospel has been a three-day work, death, burial, and resurrection. And it is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3, it's, the, it's of first importance. But he spent three and a half years showing us how to live a life that's not our own. The three-day work is of first importance. It opens the door to the life. 
But we were not created just to be forgiven. There's something sick in that if you, if you think about that very long. God didn't just create us just so he could sin, just so he could show us how great he is. That's not what it's about. He saved us. He died for us because we fell. But that just gets us back to where Adam was before he fell. And in Christ we have something that Adam and Eve never had. The life that was on the tree that they never tasted has been given now to us. And we now have in us what Adam had on a tree. We now have in us the life for which we were created. And it is this life that it is all about. It is not all about forgiveness, although that is of first importance. It's like Ezekiel 36. Again, the prophecy. I will clean you up. That's the three-day work, but that just begins there. And then I will put a new heart and a new spirit within you. And then I will bring my spirit and put my spirit in you, and my spirit in your spirit will cause you to live the life for which you were created. You will do by nature what you cannot do with all of your efforts, all of your trying, on your own. We were created for this other life. Jesus could say the Father is greater than I because the Son of God, never less than the Son of God, as the Son of God, He did what was necessary, not just to die for our sins, but laying down his will, his desires, his ambitions, his own life. I'm not talking about the three-day laying down of his life, but I'm talking about from, from birth in Bethlehem throughout all of eternity, Jesus laid down. Because if you read Revelation, he is referred to in eternity as the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. Never less than the Son of God. But he laid it fully down. Laid it fully down. Laid it fully down so in reality you and I could really be brothers and sisters. Sons and daughters born of the same seed. Sperma in the Greek in First John 3. The very sperma of God. Isn't it a wonderful thing? How did Jesus do the impossible? He didn't. But his Father who is in him, he did the works. And as the living Father sent me and I live, because I live, I send you and you will live. In this sense, Jesus says, be imitators of me. Amen. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Praise be to your holy name, Lord. Praise be to your name. Lord, I just, I confess before you, the more I hear your word, the more I, I see what you've done. It's you alone, you alone that I desire, you alone that I hunger to experience in fullness. 
And I pray that for my brothers and sisters, Lord, your sons and daughters born of your very seed. O Heavenly Father, I'm asking that as you sent the Son and as the Son sent us, we might also live as the Son lived by your life, by the divine nature for which we were created. We joyfully lay down our will, our ambitions, Lord, our vocations, our all. You be our all in all. We ask in Christ Jesus. Amen. We're going to break for just 10 minutes at 20 till. We'll begin the last segment.